Guys, we're going to uh, begin a new sermon series this morning. I've been incredibly excited about it as I've been uh, preparing in prayer and, and study over the last couple of months, most of the summer. And uh, it's entitled Unlikely Church, and it's based on a study through the entire book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians. Uh, if you're not entirely familiar with that book, it's a letter written by um, a gentleman named Paul. He was a, an apostle, one of the earliest eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, Jesus, as well as a leader in the church, quite instrumental in, in spreading the gospel around Asia and parts of Europe. Um, and his name was Paul, and he wrote a letter to one of the earliest churches in the ancient city of Corinth, who had heard, responded to the gospel, and become a, a community, a church centered around Jesus. Um, now, if you're at all familiar with ancient Corinth, um, it doesn't actually exist anymore. There's a modern-day Corinth that's been built up um, a few miles sort of to the, to the left of the ancient site. Um, but a couple thousand years ago, and even beyond, the city, the ancient Greek city of Corinth was a major, major hub for international trade and commerce, um, exchanging of ideas, uh, the, the propagation of, of culture and new ideas, religion. Corinth was where the action was at. And uh, Paul, if you trace his, where he went, his missionary journeys as he traveled about the, the surrounding region of, of Judea and where he was from, it's obvious that Paul was picking strategic places, big cities, centers of influence and culture, wanting to take the message about Jesus to places where it would make the most impact, at least in theory. And so he took it to Corinth. Um, as we progress through his letter to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, we will soon discover that of all of the churches to spring up in the first century upon the preaching of the gospel, Corinth is arguably the most unlikely church to have ever survived the first century. The amount of, of pressures from, from without and within that the church was constantly experiencing would have made it seem like, look, the gospel's never gonna last in this place. It's just not. The cultural influences, the, the mindsets, the, the political factors, and everything else involved would make it seem like there's, there's just no way this church is gonna survive. And yet, we know, in fact, it did. Um, and it spread. What began in that city went well beyond that ancient city itself and outlived the very city itself. I think there's several significant parallels between what God did in that unlikely church and ours here today in Portland, which is why we're gonna study this letter in quite depth. Unlikely church. Now, Typically, when you start a sermon series, uh, you take a whole Sunday to, to intro it. And uh, in my research, I discovered a phenomenal resource 
that's going to help us introduce the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians. And the introduction happens to be Paul's introduction to the letter itself. <laughs> Go figure. So we're going to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians and get started. You guys excited for this? Of course you are. I'm excited. I'm really excited. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. This is the introduction to the letter. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brothers Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's like a dear Corinth. Next slide. I give thanks to my God always. For you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's quite a kind introduction. Question, what, if anything at all, do you know about the church in Corinth? Besides just a bit of the historical context I just shared with you. Anyone read this this letter before? A couple people, maybe. Well, I'll tell you, in case you have no idea, the church in Corinth had a few problems, to put it quite mildly, okay? The church had issues. I've compiled a short list of the problems with the church in Corinth. I've actually read the book, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a bit of a summary. Okay, hang on. Problems with the church in Corinth. Major divisions over essentially what amounts to a spiritual popularity contest. Intellectual snobbery, holier-than-thou attitudes uh, towards those who aren't even in the church. Rampant sexual morality, uh, i.e. having sex with prostitutes, and in some case, guys even sleeping with his own stepmom. Apparently that was going on. Uh, lawsuits between fellow church members. Could you imagine how awkward would that be to find out that like Jacob was suing Lily? <laughs> That'd be a little awkward. Maybe if there was like a thousand of us in the room. In all likelihood, the church in Corinth was much smaller than what we are now. Uh, a total disregard for the spiritual well-being of fellow church members taking place in the name of, quote-unquote, freedom. Here's a good one. Blatant demon worship taking place 
also in the name of freedom. Poor people with no food being completely skipped over at the church potlucks. Uh, not to mention the people getting plastered there. So apparently it was quite common that at the church gatherings that they'd come together and eat. If you didn't bring any food, you were like, no, 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 you didn't bring anything, go sit in the corner. And then a bunch of other people were just getting completely wasted. The Sunday services were utter chaos, more like an episode of America's Got Spiritual Talent than Corinthians coming together for a time of humble encouragement and sincere Christ-centered worship. Visitors were apparently leaving convinced that these Christians were utterly insane, just crazy because of the way they were acting at their Sunday services. And to top it all off, there was apparently also a group within the church who had determined that Jesus never actually rose from the dead. So on a theological level, slightly problematic, considering the entire Christian faith is built upon this one historical event. And that's not to mention the problems surrounding the church. So that's just like within the church congregation itself. There was also a number of pressures taking place outside the church. For example, um, being located on the isthmus between mainland Greece and the Peloponnese Peninsula, Corinth was situated between two of the most well-used harbors in the ancient Roman world. This made Corinth extremely wealthy and extremely transient, people coming and going constantly. And so like any rich, bustling port town, this set the city up to host, among many others, a thriving commercial sex industry. Mind you of any place? You know Portland has the highest, gross, highest grossing commercial sex industry per capita in North America. This is based on, a, on a, an article I read in a, in a secular publication uh, in Portland probably about two years ago. Um, here's another problem. That, of course, would explain why of all the many Greek and Roman gods that were being worshipped in the city, Corinth's patron saint, if you will, was none other than the goddess Aphrodite, which is where we get our word aphrodisiac. She was the goddess of love, sensuality, sexual perversion, and all the rest. Some ancient Greek historians and archaeologists concluded that upwards of a thousand temple prostitutes, male and female, would have been known to provide services at the temple at one time. Besides the obvious problems that prostitution caused anywhere, on a societal level, such gross sexual exploitation led to innumerable problems to do with the way men and women loved and related to each other. So naturally, there was some major issues to do with the way men and women were getting along. Um, and enjoying healthy relationships, marriages, etc. And finally, in terms of worship and spirituality, spiritual pluralism was the order of the day, which is to say, as a Christian whose sole allegiance was to King Jesus, the level of political, social, and spiritual pressure that one would have been constantly subjected to would have been off the charts. Talking about spiritual warfare, Corinth was a city with, um, I think I read, 26 major shrines set up to God, Roman and Greek gods and goddesses all throughout the city. Okay, to not be a religious pluralist, to not have at least a few gods that you are worshiping on a consistent basis would have been just weird. 
Like really, really weird, unpopular, unpopular and intolerable. Christians, of course, one of the things that distinguished them was that they just weren't worshiping shrines or, or gods or ideas to do with spirituality and religions. They were worshiping a God who had in fact entered into creation and evidenced that reality through his death and ultimate resurrection back to life. So their sole allegiance was to the Messiah, King Jesus, which meant they weren't worshiping other gods, which meant they were like the the social pariah of the ancient Greek world. Not super popular, and in terms of spiritual warfare, um, it would have been intense. So just a few challenges in the church in Corinth. And yet, and yet, look at what Paul says in his introduction. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. The believers in Corinth had massive heads and and mouths to boot. One of their problems was that they were intellectual snobs. They knew too much for their own good. Their knowledge was actually not helping them. And apparently they just could not shut up about it. And yet Paul thanks God for enriching them in speech and knowledge. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you were not lacking in any gift, another major problem, in this church, if you've read the book, if you've read the letter, the spiritual gift um, seen in Corinth, it it was highly problematic. Um, The gifts weren't being utilized in a way that uh, blessed people or, or put attention on Jesus. It was more like, again, like a like a like an opportunity to display and show off. Like, I've got a word, or I can speak in tongues, or I've got this. And and everyone was talking over the person next to them, and it was chaos, it was disorder, it it was not loving or from God. And yet Paul says, you were not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse eight, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It almost makes you wonder if Paul wasn't injecting just a hint of sarcasm in his introduction to the church in Corinth. But he most certainly was not. This is Paul writing a letter to an unlikely to survive church through the lens of God's faithfulness. On what grounds? Is Paul unaware? No, he's obviously not. In fact, if we, next week, we'll get right into the drama, we'll see that Paul wastes no time in addressing the problems. He's not deluded, he's not unaware, but he's writing to these believers in this ancient city through the lens of God's faithfulness. 
God is faithful. On the grounds that despite everything that's broken, twisted, or impossibly difficult about their situation, Paul's writing to them on the basis that God is faithful. God is faithful. That's, that is profound. That is profound. God is faithful. That's, that's the story of the Bible. That's, I mean, if you want to just condense it all down, put it in a nutshell, it's a love story between a God, a husband, if you will, and his unfaithful bride, us, people, broken, sinful, lost, confused, self-centered people. It's the story of a God who, no matter what happens, no matter how many times his creation turns his back, denies him, fails, lapses back into self-centeredness and sin, God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never give up on you. I'll never stop being faithful to you. My children, my bride, my creation, us. God is faithful. God doesn't just work with one of us, attempt to woo us, rescue us, and then after a couple of weeks gets discouraged and gives up. He's not the kind of God who after 2,000 years of attempting to redeem his people, draw his children back into a right, healthy, life-giving relationship with himself. He doesn't finally get bored and say, you know what, like 2,000 years, come on guys, give me a break, like I'm moving on. He's faithful. He's so utterly, unfathomably faithful. This is the basis from which Paul is writing to our friends in Corinth. Exodus 34, 6. Let me share this with you guys. This is, um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, this is when Moses is having this epic moment with Yahweh, God. He's just about to come down from Mount Sinai. This is a second attempt to get the tablets. Um, and God is speaking to the prophet Moses. He says, look, I need you to lead my people. They're going to cross over the Jordan River. They're going to go into a, the promised land. And I need you to lead them. And Moses is like, look, you don't get it. These people, they're, uh, they're idiots. They're hard. They're stiff-necked. I need, you, I need to know that you're going to come with us. If, if nothing else, I need to know that your presence will be among us. And they talk a little bit more. And at the very end of that, that conversation, Moses prays this powerful prayer. And he says, God, show me your glory. How about that? God, show me your glory. And God says, all right. But just, just so you know, I'm going to need to hide you in a little rock. Because if, if I were to actually show you my glory, like, you would die. It would just, you would be fried. So he tucks him in a little rock. And it says that the glory of the Lord passed by Moses. And the name of the Lord was proclaimed. 
This is what God says of himself in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God, this is God's name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the essence of our God. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He doesn't give up. He doesn't relent. He never turns his back. It says in 2 Timothy 2.23, even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Even if we blow it, a thousand times over, God never ever turns his back on his children. It's incredible. Question. This is rhetorical. Have you ever experienced the pain of unfaithfulness? Have, have you ever been cheated on? Have you ever had a, a mom or a dad um, bail on the family? Have you ever been lied to? Have you ever really, really needed someone to be there for you? And they assured you they would be. And when it came down to it, they were a no-show. I don't know if there's any pain in this life, in my experience, that comes close to the pain of unfaithfulness. I've, back in the day, um, in my previous life, I, I had a girlfriend who cheated on me. I had a couple girlfriends cheat on me. It, it wrecks you. It just, it's just like, it's a soul-crushing emotion. And it affects you deeply. It affects the way you, you view people again after that. It affects the way you... You engage in, in intimate relationships again after that. It affects your ability to be vulnerable and trust again after that. It, it can impact your whole life. How much more impactful is the experience of being in a relationship with an utterly faithful God? It affects everything. Potentially. Potentially. It can impact every aspect of our lives. Your ability to trust people again. It can affect your willingness to, to not close down, to shut people out, to give up hope to become cynical, jaded, apathetic. I don't think anyone's really apathetic. I think it's sort of a last resort defense mechanism. When you've experienced unfaithfulness just one too many times. But I wanna talk about, I wanna talk about how being in a relationship with a God who is utterly unfaithful can impact our lives. God's faithfulness forms the basis 
for, radic- for a radically different outlook on life. I want to look at three, three ways that that's evident based on what we read here in 1 Corinthians. Number one, through the lens of God's faithfulness, you can go to the next slide, we can have an attitude of gratitude over criticalness. This is where Paul starts. He says, I thank God. If I was writing the letter, get just like brutally honest confession, if I was writing the letter, if I was Paul, I would be tempted to say, to say something like this. Dear Corinthians, you suck. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Seriously. Now, there was an emotional attachment to these people. Paul was the one who preached the gospel in, in Corinth. He, he says, uh, Paul and Sosthenes. You know who Sosthenes was? If you go back to Acts 18, he was one of the leaders of the synagogue who the entire sort of congregation of Jews in that particular synagogue, they, they, they wanted to get Paul out of town. They made a united front against Paul and this message about this alleged resurrected Christ. They were, they were ticked. And so they decided, like, we got to get this guy out of town. The, the Roman proconsul wouldn't listen to them. So you know what they did? They grabbed Sosthenes and they dragged him in front of the Roman proconsul and they started to beat him, wail on him just to get their attention. Of course, it said that, that the proconsul ignored them and he didn't, he didn't fall for it. This was personal. Okay, this wasn't like just some church that Paul heard about that he's writing a, a book to. Like he, he was deeply, emotionally invested in these people. Many of them have now utterly turned on him. They're, they're, they're picking sides. Um, another one of the apostles, you can also read about in Acts 18 and 19, was a guy named Apollos. Many of the Corinthians had decided, no, no, forget Paul. What with Apollos? Apparently, Paulus was very eloquent. And they were like, we're, we're down with the eloquence. Okay, we like our knowledge. And so they were siding with Apollos, rejecting Paul, who apparently wasn't super impressive in speech or appearance. This was personal. And yet, because of God's faithfulness, Paul was, he was seeing this from a slightly different perspective. He had gratitude over criticalness. Secondly, we see an attitude of generosity over insecurity. I love how, how kind, how generous Paul is with his words to the Corinthians. Now typically, when, when we're invested in relationships in a community like ours, for example, and things aren't going well, and you're beginning to see things that you don't like, it's easy to start feeling a bit insecure about your place, about the people around you. Insecurity quickly turns into defensiveness. Defensiveness usually manifests in withdrawal, holding back, or criticalness. But instead of giving in to feelings of insecurity, which Paul would have been justified in doing, let's be fair, he has a different lens. He's seeing this whole situation through the fact that, no, no, you, you guys, you guys are struggling, but God is faithful, and so his words are filled with generosity, with kindness. 
Don't we see this in like the, the bigger world around us? Particularly in the church. I'll be the first to admit it. Christians can be really, really mean. And not just what typically we at least try to be nice to non-Christians because we don't want to be like bigots, right? But when it comes to our brothers and sisters in like the other churches that we don't agree with, we can be harsh. We can like write nasty books about each other and, 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 and run campaigns against each other and call each other heretics and apostates. And, and yet, Paul, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't start there. He doesn't even end there. He's like, look, I get it. You guys are blowing it big time, he's probably thinking to himself. But you guys have been enriched in speech and knowledge. You're not lacking any gift. And God is going to sustain you until the day Jesus returns. He's being encouraging. He's seeing their problems as potential for, for redemption. He's not starting by saying, look, you guys just forget about the knowledge. Forget to shut your mouth. No more spiritual gifts. I'm declaring a dispensation. He's like, look, I'm, I'm celebrating all of the ways that God has clearly blessed you. It's amazing. You guys are awesome because God is faithful. That's challenging. I read a book a number of years ago um, by a slightly controversial, he, he would be a great example of a Christian brother who many love to hate. Anyone read anything by Brian McLaren? Okay, good, because if any, anyone know of Brian McLaren and have vowed to never read anything he's ever written, he's a bit of a controversial character. He wrote a book called Generous Orthodoxy a number of years ago. And the whole point is that within the great, big, historical family of God, we've missed many, many, many opportunities to learn from each other. And his encouragement is, instead of maligning, like the Roman Catholic Church, instead of marginalizing the Eastern Orthodox Church, instead of writing books to slam our brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that Jesus died for their sins and ours and conquered death and came back to life and is coming back again, that makes them our brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of focusing on all of the ways they've gone wrong, let's be generous towards one another. Let's remember that this is God's family and he is faithful to begin, to finish what he's begun to complete what he has started. That's called generosity. Lastly, through the lens of God's faithfulness, we can have hope over cynicism. Paul's convinced that no matter how bad things get, no matter how twisted or dark things become, God has the power, the goodness, and the faithfulness to sustain them until the very end. You know how the, the ancient city of Corinth eventually came to, to uh, an end? Earthquake, massive earthquake, just utterly leveled the city. 
never to be built up again. And yet Paul was convinced. Paul had hope. God God started this and he's going to finish it. He's faithful to complete what he's begun. Guys, we need this. Our, our, um, what do you call it? Our postmodern world. You guys know about postmodernism? Kind of, it's a bit passe now. But the grand outcome of a, of a whole sort of, uh, I don't know, generation of postmodern thought, philosophy, and, and attitude, you know where it's gotten us? Just cynicism. Postmodernism is really good at deconstructing ideas and, uh, and, and so-called absolutes, but does nothing in way of, of offering an alternative or an ultimate solution. It just relativizes everything and essentially leaves you with nothing other than a slightly empty, hopeless feeling in your stomach. That's called cynicism. It's helpful in terms of being a bit more thoughtful about certain truths that perhaps we just once simply assumed, but without providing some sort of answer or alternative, it only ever leads you to hopelessness. I'll tell you a truth that I've come to to deeply embrace and stand upon. God is faithful. God is faithful, even when I'm not. Actually, mostly when I'm not. When the world's falling apart around me, when it feels, so deeply feels like my marriage is just hanging on a thread, I take my stand on the fact that God is faithful. He started it. He started it. He's faithful to complete what he's begun. When my finances, Shirley and I had our quarterly finance meeting uh, earlier this week. Love them. So much fun. God is faithful. God is faithful. When my friends um, don't seem to be too faithful, when I feel more judged and critiqued by the people that I'm looking to lean on and, and get help from, the truth that I'm standing on is God is faithful. I, I will not become critical. I will not stop being generous with my words. I will never, ever give up hope because God is faithful. I will trust again. I will be vulnerable. I will continue to give because God is faithful. Do you know him? Do you know him? Is that a, is that a reality that you, you stand on in your life? Have you ever made a commitment to embrace that God? He calls himself Father. Faithful Father. Guys, I want us to respond to that question now. Can I invite the band to come up? That's actually not a rhetorical question. 
Do you know this faithful God? Awesome. Do you want to know him? That was my encouragement in moments like this, every time, every week, is that with the words, the words are great, truth is important, but apart from God's grace making truth personal, without the spirit of God embodying truth, these, these words are no more than ideas. For us to respond to the faithfulness of God is, is to surrender something in our souls. It's to put our hands out. It's to open our, ourselves up to say, God, I, wanna, I want to experience your faithfulness in this area and in this area and in this area and in this area. And I'm making a decision right now, maybe, maybe for the thousandth time, it, it doesn't really matter, maybe for the first time, Say, God, I want, I want to experience your faithfulness. This is why Jesus went to the cross. This is why God entered into creation to die for our sins. Because we were broke. We were lost. We were utterly unfaithful. We were faithless. So God initiated something. He went on a rescue mission. He was faithful to the end.